You are listening to Paranormal Tales from the Tower. My name is Kathy Kelly, and this episode is Tony Chop Chop Acosta. Sometimes when you start digging for something, it starts digging up to meet you. That's kind of how I felt when I spent a few days looking into the Tony Chop Chop murder case on Cape Cod. Enough time has gone by that I felt totally comfortable looking at it in a place that I know pretty well among people that I'm familiar with, if not close to. I'm not sure I was right though. Distance in time may make something seem less real, less tragic, but that's just it. It's just scenes not is or was. It doesn't actually lessen the tragedy. I'd heard the story of Tony Chop Chop many years ago in passing. Serial killers and haunted houses have a way of finding me. Exorcisms seek me out too. People like to share these things with me, probably in the hopes of telling me something new or maybe even finding out something new themselves. It's kind of like asking someone in Sweden if they know Olaf. Sure, they no doubt know an Olaf, but the odds of them knowing your Olaf are slim. Maybe that's a stretch. After all, I do research pretty much every place I go for ghosts and hauntings and weird shit. So of course I had heard of Tony Chop Chop, but the story was so run-of-the-mill serial killer for me at the time that I'd only done a very cursory read on it. How jaded can I be? This serial killer isn't what, sexy enough? Freaky enough? I don't know, but it's true. Of course, I didn't read very deeply into it. Every serial killer is devastating because they kill people. And honestly, that's enough. The story of Tony Chop Chop is important, but least of all because of him. I'm older now. I don't know about wiser, but I'm interested in stories from a different place, a different perspective. Not necessarily the titillation factor or the gore or the weirdness. Well, I mean, obviously that still interests me. But what struck me about Tony Chop Chop, or Antoine Costa, was the location. Cape Cod, Massachusetts. You guys know I spent a lot of time up there. It's a place that I've come to know and it's a place that I love. And it's a place that I kind of thought I knew. But if nothing else, what you learn when you read history, is just how little you really do know. Let's get the name out of the way. It's not a great one. It's lighthearted and it's buffoonish. Considering the guy was responsible for at least four and up to eight gruesome murders, it feels a little cavalier. But in the end, it's accurate. Anton Costa was born on August 2nd, 1944. He started out at a disadvantage as his father had died before his birth. Senior was killed in action in the Pacific during World War II. Costa's mother remarried and had more children with her new husband. Their lives were not ideal. Costa claimed that he was physically abused during his childhood by his stepfather. It may be true. Who knows? It seems entirely possible, even likely. As a little boy, Costa made another claim, one that's stranger than the others. He told his mother that a man used to sneak into his room at night and watch him. 
When pressed to identify the man, he pointed to a picture of his deceased father and identified him as the night visitor. Was it the hopeful musings of a sad and frightened child? If he was being abused, it doesn't seem like a huge stretch that he would think his real dad was watching out for him or that he might hope that his real dad was. Yet the implication from the people who spoke of this was not that Tony felt safe or reassured, but that he was frightened of the visitor. Did he see a ghost? Seven years of age is right in that sweet spot for paranormal visitation. It's hard to know. But someone was interrupting his sleep at night, and it's hard not to feel sorry for the kid that he was. Costa was always a little off. He was a dedicated predator, even in his youth. When he was 16 in 1961, Costa traveled from Cape Cod to Somerville, Massachusetts. That's not a little distance when you're 16 years of age. While he was there, he peeped in the window of a teenage girl. Eventually, he broke into the apartment that she lived in and snuck into her room. She was awakened to him standing there, leaning over her bed, staring down at her. That is an incredibly brazen thing to do. It makes you think that either he was super bold or super stupid or, or both. That's dangerous. The girl started screaming and Costa took off. Now, generally, that's where the interaction between the two would probably end. Peeping Tom gets caught and runs away, no doubt counting his lucky stars that he didn't get caught by the police. Peeping Tom finds another window in which to peep. But that's not what happened. Tony went back, and when he went back, he tried to drag her down the stairs and take her away with him. Let that sink in. He climbed in her window, he grabbed her by the hair, he dragged her out of her bed and through the bedroom door and down the stairs towards the front door. Only that her neighbors heard the ruckus and intervened to help her did he stop. What was he planning on doing? Costa, not yet 17 years of age, was arrested and convicted of burglary and assault. He was sentenced to one year of a suspended sentence and three years of probation. In hindsight, that's pretty frustrating. Not long after, at the age of just 18, Tony married a 14-year-old and proceeded to have three children. Pardon me while I retch. Not everything has changed in the past 60 years for the good, but laws about consent and age definitely are. Holy moly. As you can imagine, it was not a perfect union. And after about just four years, it dissolved. It is recorded that his drug use intervened in their happiness, and I'm sure that's what went wrong. Hopefully you can hear my eye roll. Costa still had not found what he was looking for, but he knew it was female, and he knew he liked to get high. In 1966, he picked up Bonnie Williams and Diane Federoff. He brought them home and announced that he was leaving Cape Cod and heading out to San Francisco, the Haight-Ashbury, and the girls were heading to Pennsylvania. He was going to give them a ride on his way. It's probably not a surprise to anyone that Bonnie and Diane never made it home to Pennsylvania. Costa claimed that they changed their minds and rode all the way with him to California. Yet, they were never found in California. In fact, they were never seen in California. In fact, they were never heard from again. 
Costa did not stay long in California, I wonder why, but came back to Cape Cod and promptly shot a female friend with an arrow while they were walking in the woods. Oops. She didn't die and he apologized, claiming it was an accident. Costa was attractive. There are many mentions of that, but he must have also been very charming in some ways. He always had girlfriends and women waiting to spend time with him. By 1968, his marriage was over, which was probably the best gift his wife could have ever asked for. In January, he went back to California. Never one to be alone long, he met Barbara Spaulding and they began dating. On the day that Costa left to return to Massachusetts, Spaulding dropped her kid off with relatives and apparently rode off to Destiny because she was never seen again. Costa, however, made it home to Massachusetts just fine albeit alone. In May of 1968, he broke into a doctor's office and stole about $5,000 worth of supplies, including scalpels. He had a curiosity, you see. About a week later, a teenager in Provincetown, Massachusetts, Sidney Monzone, went missing. It was noted that she had been spending a lot of time with Tony Costa. Still, she had finished her shift at the AMP and had left her bike leaning against the fence. Costa was a problematic guy, apparently, to get along with. And unless he decided you were girlfriend material, then he seemed charming and fun. But to everyone else, he was stubborn and a know-it-all. An acquaintance said of him, quote, there was no middle ground with him. He just kept at you. That's why people left him alone. They were just tired of his shit. And although he worked in construction, he had a big, sweet side gig, growing weed in the woods along the Cape. A couple of weeks after Monzone went missing, Costa, footloose and fancy free once again since his divorce, had a new live-in girlfriend, 17-year-old Susan Perry. Susan Perry had not had an easy life either. She was described as a lonely girl with few people in her life who loved her. Her parents had divorced and she was an easy target for an older man giving out attention. Sadly, she did not last much longer than the others. After only about 10 days, Costa started telling people that she'd run off to Mexico. Costa's work was made easy by the strained relationships many of these young women had with their families. Mun's own sister thought she'd gone to Europe with a girlfriend, and Perry's mother assumed she had just moved to another town. Costa was renting a room at this point and not paying child support once again. In January of 1969, he met two young women, one a registered nurse and the other a college senior. Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wasaki had visited Provincetown in the summer and had decided later to take a weekend getaway during the winter months. These two young women were not the castaway types that Costa had met before. They had families that paid attention to them and jobs and responsibilities and also they had a car. They bumped into the Cape Cod Casanova, as Kurt Vonnegut would call Costa, at the rooming house they were all staying at. Mrs. Morton, the woman who ran the place, introduced them. The day after they checked in, Mrs. Morton found a note taped to the girl's door asking them for a ride to Truro and signed Tony. He was seen sitting in the back seat of the Volkswagen that day, and in fact he flagged down a friend who was carrying a paycheck for him. The two women were giving him the lift that he had asked for, a lift to Truro, a town about 15 or 20 minutes away. Truro, where Tony Costa kept his garden. His garden consisted of marijuana plants. Of course, he planted more than pot there as well.
The Volkswagen was seen later that day and subsequently in Tony's possession, but the two young women never, ever were seen again. They missed dates and appointments. And on the Sunday afterwards, the Sunday after they gave him a ride, Mrs. Morton found a note pinned to their door. This time it purported to be from them, and it read, quote, We are checking out. Thank you for your many kindnesses, Marianne and Pat, end quote. The paper was the same as the note from Costa. A few days later, Costa inquired at a local auto body shop about painting a Volkswagen. He wanted it a bright and interesting color. That Volkswagen was seen driving in Truro later, and Costa asked some friends from Boston to ride out to Truro with him because he had a Volkswagen that he had parked in the woods for about a week, and he wasn't sure if it would start. It did. By this point, things were unraveling. Costa offered to sell some friends a 22 caliber gun he had buried in those very same Truro woods near his garden. He inquired around Boston about getting a fake driver's license and bill of sale. He told friends the girls had given him the car and left for Canada. Finally, he drove the car to Vermont, rented a parking space for it, and tried to register it in his own name. These were, as you can imagine, red flags. But it was 1969, and no one actually knew there were killings going on right away. Remember, both Susan Perry and Sidney Monzon's family believed that they had left town. But Marianne and Patricia were not local girls with an itch to travel, and people started looking for them. And that's when his house of cards began to fall, and the true horror of who and what he was was revealed. Tony kept the garden all right, but it wasn't only weed. When officials started looking for the two women from Providence, Rhode Island, they went out to the spots in the woods where the car had been. It was close to the old Truro Cemetery. Now this cemetery is off Route 6, but it's not visible. And it's not an easy spot to reach if you don't know where it is. But if you do, a few minutes off-roading should get you there. It's an old cemetery, and it has old graves. There are still some new ones too, but it's definitely isolated. It's definitely local. There's a holding chamber in the cemetery made of brick. This would have been used as a storage facility for winter months when the ground was too frozen to dig new graves. If a member of the community died in these months during the years before refrigeration and formaldehyde, before corpse preservation, they would have been stored here in a root cellar of sorts until the spring when the thaw would allow them to be properly interred. If you walk into those woods today and cross through the gates of this old cemetery, you'll see that brick-arched roof built right into a soft rise in the ground. Just as it always was, just as it always has been, with a stiff metal door to keep out critters, and perhaps to keep the dead from rising. In 1969, this would have been relatively obsolete. For Tony, it offered a private space to do his evil deeds. Tony wasn't just a killer, he was curious. He had curious tastes and strange desires. In the middle of February, the remains of a young woman were found near this old cemetery. She had been dismembered. Actually, at the time, it was said that there was many pieces that there were joints in the body. Maybe this is overstating. Susan Perry was an eight gruesome parts when they found her in Tony's garden. 
Later, they found the rest of his victims in varying states of dismemberment. In the same clearing were found the head and torso of Marianne Wasaki. She had been killed, however, with a gunshot to the head. So had Patricia Walsh, but her body had been further interfered with and was missing organs. Finally, Sidney Monzone was found, as well, and in much the same condition. They had been murdered, dismembered, and in some cases there was evidence of cannibalism and some evidence of other perversions. Costa quickly became suspected, as this was his garden. He was arrested and tried, and the case was such that it intrigued people like Kurt Vonnegut, who compared Costa to Charles Manson and maintained a correspondence with him. And of course, Costa maintained his innocence. He wrote a novel about his story, and in it there was a man named Carl. Carl, it seems, was his friend, his constant companion. But he was the one who did all of the bad things that happened. None of the events were intentional. The women had all overdosed while doing drugs with him and Carl, and Carl had disposed of their bodies, shooting some of them in the head just to make sure that they were truly dead before cutting them up and planting them in the garden. Carl, perhaps a person, I guess? Perhaps an alter ego? Maybe a last-ditch effort to stave off a life in prison? Who knows? But four years into his life sentence, Costa apparently committed suicide. It is strange, and some don't believe it was suicide, because Costa adamantly professed his innocence. He truly seemed to believe what he was writing and saying. We all ask these questions when we delve into the psyches of human monsters. These minds that are so alien, so free of human emotional constraint, and so devoid of empathy. They make us question whether evil, as a literal, powerful, and sentient force, does it exist? Is it there? This man who has a child was visited at night by a dark figure he thought was his father. Was he destined for this? Was there a moment in his life when something could have changed and it all could have been different? Had he not walked into the woods and found his garden and found this work shed, would these women, all of these women, have lived? I don't know if there's an answer. But I do know that Tony Chop Chop Costa, as he was named, still lingers in Provincetown in Truro, if only as a horrific memory. On the massive dunes and the back roads and the cemetery where he's buried, there are some who say he still walks. Some who say that his crimes were too great for heaven or hell to collect him, to house him. Perhaps, or perhaps it's the scar left in a small town where people know each other's business but try desperately to tend only their own. If you decide to try to find Tony's grave, you can. He's buried in an unmarked spot, but a little sleuthing and a little knowledge of small town life, well, that should get you there. If you decide to walk through that cemetery where he's buried, which is not the one that houses his workshop, Take a good look around. 
as you stand at his gravesite, if you look toward the rolling hill, just about 50 feet away, there's another grave, a small plaque flat to the ground where the road crosses the cemetery and it just rises to meet the chapel. That grave belongs to Susan Perry. She was 17 when she met Tony Acosta. She was 17 when she died. And she is buried in eight pieces, 50 feet from her killer. That is small town life. If you wonder if the cemetery is haunted, well, it depends on who you ask. If you wonder why the cemetery is haunted, well, perhaps these small town stories will give you an inkling. Perhaps those 50 feet, those mere 50 feet between monster and prey will give you one answer. Thank you for listening to Paranormal Tales from the Tower. My name is Kathy Kelly. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope we hear from you. You can visit us at www.paranormalbooksnj.com. Hit us up on any of our social media. And of course, send me an email, Kathy with a K, at paranormalbooksnj.com. I'd love to hear from you.